Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Melissa Shu and Dr. Kimberly Garter from, uh, about a wonderful book they published with Oxford University Press. The book is called Philosophy for Girls, An Invitation to the Life of Thought, which was published in 2020. Um, Dr. Melissa Shu is an associate professor of philosophy at Marquette University, and Dr. Kim Garcher is an associate professor of philosophy at Kent State University. Melissa and Kim, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, to start um, the conversation, can you please just briefly introduce yourself and your field of study? I'm really interested to know how you became interested in philosophy which is now your field of expertise. Maybe, Kim, we should start with you or... Okay, yeah, Yeah. I'm happy to. I came to philosophy a little later in life in that my undergraduate degree was in mathematics. And I actually went to graduate school for mathematics, but I was too young to recognize that what I really liked about math was the theoretical aspect and not the applied aspect. And I was in an applied mathematics program. So that did not last long. <laughs> that ended after about one semester. Um, and then I later became interested in clinical ethics, medical ethics. I went back to school to pick up philosophy. And then I went to graduate school and went to a philosophy program where I was able to study pragmatism, feminism, medical ethics. And so my main areas of research are in ethics, various aspects of ethics, death and dying, um, medical ethics, feminism, those sorts of things. But I'm primarily an ethicist. Thank you, Melissa. And I came from a totally different direction, which makes us really compatible. And I'll talk about that in a second as to kind of how this book started to take shape in the most recent um, time. So I came through poetry and literature and art and film. And my undergraduate degrees were, I had a few degrees in English literature, a couple minors in French and music, and also some political science in there. Unlike the university I currently teach at, which is Marquette University, which is a Catholic Jesuit university where philosophy is required for all students, it wasn't required where I went to school. I went to Miami University of Ohio, which has a phenomenal philosophy department, but it wasn't required. So I found myself my senior year um, thinking about taking a course in Plato, and I did. And I fell in love. I didn't understand any of it, but to me, it was a really gripping story. You know, Plato wrote dialogues, and it was it was just a gripping story that asked great questions. And it reminded me of some of my favorite authors like Dante. And so I wanted to keep studying philosophy, and I started at Boston University, and I wanted to keep reading Greek. And so I um, ended up transferring to the University of Oregon, where I met one of my BFFs, Kim Garcher, and she and I had very different philosophical 
fields of study, but very compatible, I'd say, topics and interests around justice, around equity, around kind of the nature of existence and so on. And so my my first go around, um, I was a scholar in ancient Greek philosophy, actually. And a lot of my way of thinking is indebted to that and what is called the continental tradition. Um, so that's that's my background. Now, of course, it's turned also toward social justice and feminism, but I also love the history of philosophy in the West and around the world. Uh, thank you both. I, 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 there, there is one question that I'll ask you uh, in a minute, which is uh, the, the, the book is fascinating because most of the chapters start with a reference to um, to to a heroine or or or, or a, a woman of uh, a famous woman in literature epic that might have come from you Melissa I don't know because you have this background in it literature did. Yeah. okay there you go okay I didn't know that but the moment you said that you studied literature I had an idea that you might have come from you there's a reference to Mary Shelley and I was uh, it was in a different chapter on technology because I did my a part of my PhD my PhD thesis was on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein so I really loved that chapter. <laughs> Cool. Anyway, uh, how did this book come about and why did you decide to write a book uh, called Philosophy for Girls? So I'll take that question because this idea started a long time ago and I'll tell a little story here and then tell you how it turned into a beautiful collaboration, I think, between Kim and me and then about 20 brilliant women in philosophy. So. I was a young professor at Marquette. I was still finishing my dissertation at the University of Oregon, but I had moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I was 29 years old. And I had these brilliant women in my class. And whenever they would speak, they would say, I don't know, or it's just my opinion, but they would write their butts off in their essays. And so I started kind of getting a bee in my bonnet about this, and I was wondering, how it could be that they could have a younger woman as a professor and still not feel like they could contribute in class. And of course, you know, we were reading a lot of male philosophers, but I also do a, a pretty decent job of including women philosophers and so on. And so it really started to, to bother me. And so I started calling them into my office one after another, just to kind of get to the bottom of this. And in my office, they would just start laying forth their ideas and their theories about the universe and the meaning of life and value and so on. And I started to get really irritated that it didn't seem like there were any books or resources that explicitly included them. So I thought me being in the front of the classroom is not enough, clearly. And I started to wonder where there was an explicit intellectual invitation for them. And I distinctly remember one day after yet another brilliant woman just left my office after having dropped, you know, knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb, and she thinks she's, you know, no big deal or has no confidence. I literally smacked my hand on the desk and I said, that's it. I'm writing philosophy for girls. And it just came to me like Athena fully formed. So that was in, as I said, about 2010. Um, fast forward a decade, I still hadn't written it. At this point, my spouse is telling me, you really need to get on that book. And I was teaching a billion classes, had a lot of work responsibilities. And at this point, I was talking with my friend Kim from grad school. and We'd become really close at this point um, through everything. And one night, we're in one of our long phone conversations about our own kind of vocational desires and such. And, and I said, look, do you want to do, do this with me? 
And she immediately said yes, without hesitation. And from there, um, I honestly think that this book took on a life of its own and a spirit of its own. And I really think it became a good example. I hope it became a good example of kind of feminist philosophy and feminist pedagogy and practice. And so we were able to collaborate. There were a few ideas that I brought to the table, including, as you were saying, Maury, the the non-negotiable kind of opening anecdotes, which Kim loved. She's a big reader too, you know, and um, we both teach a lot. And so we know kind of what hits with students. We made some non-negotiable kind of demands in terms of how the book would go, including things like we wanted real philosophy that was rigorous, but accessible. And so we started to seek out people who wrote the way that we wanted the book to read. And we started reaching out to people like that. But really, we just had a lot of good conversations about the vision of the book, about the different sections of the book, about how we could bring our different but compatible ideas and philosophy and ways of thinking to the book. Um, so yeah, so it came out at a perfect time, right as the pandemic hit. <laughs> and, um, um, and, you know, we're happy that it's been taken up by a good number of educators, both at the college and undergrad or and high school level. And it seems to have struck a chord with a lot of people. Um, but yeah, that's the origin was the idea came in 2010. And then as happens sometimes in philosophy was materialized just over a decade later um, and is a thoroughly collaborative project at this point. If I may add to that, and uh, more you may have planned to ask this question a little bit later, but I'd like to comment on the title Philosophy for Girls, because we sometimes have questions about that. Um, Philosophy for Girls was the title Melissa had in mind in 2010, and we were very dedicated to maintaining that title for very specific reasons. Now, we've gotten some pushback, because obviously um, at this point in time, we're working towards issues of inclusion and social justice to include trans people and people who are maybe agender, like all sorts of people. And we want all sorts of people uh, reading this book. But we hung on to the title Philosophy for Girls. And part of that was to say girls have been excluded from philosophy for a very long time. Now, there are other people who have been excluded from philosophy, too. Absolutely. There are many groups who've been excluded from Western philosophy. But girls happen to be one of those groups. And we also wanted to maintain the idea that girls is not a bad word, right? The word girls, the term girls, um, is sometimes used in infantilizing ways or in demeaning ways. But that's not what it means. And in fact, we see girls and women reclaiming the term in the same way we saw the, the term queer reclaimed, right? And it's becoming powerful. So we have these, you know, sayings, you go girl, you know, run like a girl, hit like a girl, um, all of these references to girl in, to the term girl in really powerful ways. And girl is starting to be used in other book titles and in other ways of interacting um, you know, with uh, both people of all genders. So we felt really dedicated to keeping that title, even though there was some initial concern from a few people. And if I can add to that super quick, didn't we discover, Kim, that 
in our research about how the word girl was being used, wasn't one of the statistics that we found something like 86% of the top literary fiction bestsellers of the past few years used girl in the title? It was overwhelming. And yet none of them are what we would call girls. They're not, you know, 12 and under. So the girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl in the, you know, the girl on the train, all these different ways of, of using it. It's become a really broad term. And I remember, Kim, another, at one point in our early conversation with some of the contributors, one of the contributors said about the title, and I think she put it really nicely, and this was Jillian Russell, um, who I believe is over in your neck of the woods, Maury, actually. But she said, the way I think of it is it's like this. The book is called Philosophy for Girls, and it's kind of like making a beautiful meal that you know that one person will especially enjoy it because they really love that thing, but everyone will love it, right? And so it's not that the book is supposed to be read kind of just by girls or just by women. It should be read, in fact, a lot by men and people who typically don't find themselves drawn in 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 a certain way to the writings of women in their fields and um but i love thinking about that you know we tried to make a beautiful feast um filled with stories and anecdotes and myth and science a beautiful feast that anyone could enjoy but especially some those girls in my office right the women in kim's seminars and so on and in fact there have been multiple reviewers who have said the book is titled Philosophy for Girls, but really boys need to be reading it too, or boys and men need to be reading it too, because it is for girls, but it does open up um, the idea that women and girls are um, fully formed intelligent beings who are participating in the life of thought, and it does open a window into that if it's not something a person was fully aware of necessarily. Uh, fascinating stories. I'm just a speechless, both the inception of the book, the title. I actually had that question in my mind. I wanted to know if you got any pushback against the title, which yet, as you told me, to be honest, I came across this, this book about a year ago on Twitter. And the reason that I, if it was like the history of Western philosophy, I, I wouldn't even look at the book because there are hundreds of them. But the reason I picked up the book to know what it was about, looked at the table of content and read, read some part of uh, some some of the articles, the chapters, was the title, and um, in the, I think before we started the recording, I told you that I've been recording some podcasts about the uh, women philosophers, and it simply amazed me how intelligent, smart, and original these ladies were in the history of Western philosophy. But unfortunately, in in those canonical books, they're not even mentioned. They're completely erased, and there's this condescending attitudes towards women that they can't do philosophy has even philosophers like Kant have said things like that the women can't do philosophy and mm -hmm. that kind of negative and toxic legacy has 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 unfortunately endured and I think there's a little bit of a cultural problem as well because some girls even might like you said Melissa in your classes they feel maybe they are not uh they're not confident in expressing their ideas um they simply think that philosophy is the domain of men. And, but but that was a fascinating story, Tom. <laughs> uh, Can I, yeah, I go on. I'm so sorry. One of my favorite lines from the book, um, and Kim, I, you probably know what I'm going to say because Kim in her research found this great line, and I cannot remember who said it, and I don't have my my book right here, sadly. 
but she said, and it's a, it's a quote from someone. Um, so Kim, please correct me in a second. She said, if you see a, a girl reading in her room, leave her alone. She is in training. And I love that. It's so beautiful and moving, right? If you see a girl like studying at her desk, reading in her room, and it calls to mind, of course, Virginia Woolf. Um, what is it that a girl or a woman needs? You know, she needs a, a room of her own. But it's uh, but leave her alone. She's in training. Don't interrupt her. Don't try to blow apart her deep thinking or her focus with all the millions of little myriad concerns that could interrupt her. And Kim, do you have it there? I'm looking for it. If I yeah. find it, I will let you but know. But, but it's very true. You know, if we want to honor kind of the philosopher in all of us, that takes time. And, you know, we hope that this book is an opportunity for anyone to pick it up. And it doesn't have to be in a classroom. You know, I, I imagine myself, when we asked the contributors to write for this book, we said, imagine what your own 18-year-old self would want to be reading. You know, and I'm I'm very tactile. So I remember myself in bookstores just going over the spines of books. And I would have paused on this one. And I would have really bought it because it has a pomegranate on the front, which represents Persephone. <laughs> and we can talk about that maybe. But um, but but yeah, so that's I love this idea that, you know, our young women are in training right now to be great thinkers and to know that their ideas value and that they matter and that they have a right to them. And that to me mm. and Tom is very exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested to know about the uh, cover as well. There's this picture of pomegranate. I couldn't figure out what it was until I read the pro, like you, you've mentioned in the pro, like it's quite different again. So there's this, and I do strongly encourage our listeners to pick up the book, get the book and read it. It's highly accessible and we'll talk about the answers as well. But can you talk about the cover well, what, what does that pomegranate here represent absolutely so thank you for that question as kim is looking up this quote i'm so sorry kim to ask i did i found the quote so um answer the question and then i can go back to the quote so this uh, is another great story so when i realized that i was not going to be the sole author of this book and that i was giving it over to um a more beautiful collaborative project <clears throat> I knew that there were a few things I wanted to keep from the original vision. And the first actually had to do with Persephone. So I've been um, a, a fan of Greek mythology since I was four. Probably my love of Greek philosophy came from that. I grew up reading Greek myth. Um, my parents let me read all sorts of weird stuff, which I am grateful for to this day. And um, my favorite was always Persephone. So when I wrote my dissertation on chance back in 2007, 2008, the, I realized that the first mention of the word chance, which is 2K in Greek, has to do with Persephone when she's picking flowers in a meadow and her mom isn't watching. And the moment that she's picking 2K, the ground opens up and Hades comes up. And um, the word in Greek for abduct and seduce and rape is all the same. So um, Persephone is taken away to the underworld and she becomes this great kind of terrifying, clever, amazing, powerful goddess. So I've kind of been obsessed with the story because there's not much told about her. Um, there's been a, a little secret club of people who love Persephone, usually in kind of steampunk or anime and so on. And that hasn't always been my thing. I like to imagine what she's like in Hades. So the cover of the book, to answer your question, is a pomegranate. And the pomegranate in this retelling of the myth um, represents Persephone as she... If, if we all remember, she um, is offered some seeds 
by Hades and eats them. And this is how we come to have two seasons. She is able to spend six months above and six months in Hades. And um, her mom, Demeter, of course, loves when she's above ground. And that's when she gives us spring and summer. And then when she's underground, um, Persephone living in her own powers, Demeter unleashes her wrath and kills everything that grows. And that's how we have fall and winter. But I like to think about Persephone kind of waking up in Hades and what it's like to have no idea um, what's going on or where you are and how you start to, frankly, figure things out. And I think that there's a way that we can understand the story as a young woman or any person really kind of coming into their own knowledge and their own power as thinkers and as questioners and knowers. And so um, the prologue kind of tells her story. The cover art itself, I am obsessed with. That was done by a former student of mine. I taught at an all girls high school for five years. I left Marquette and did that because I felt called to kind of do the work of helping young women. Then it turns out, you know, the all girls high school I taught at really had that nailed. So I went back to Marquette. But um, the cover art was done by Lily Pickert. And she's a tremendous talent who was able to take this idea of a pomegranate and, and bring it to life. Um, I'll also use this opportunity to plug a resource that goes with Philosophy for Girls, and it's called the Persephone Project. And there are pedagogical resources available online, along with more pomegranate imagery, to help any reader um, kind of explore ideas of meaning, truth, identity, and other philosophical issues, featuring, of course, women and non-binary philosophers. So that was a really long response, but I get highly excited by pomegranates and Persephone. Um, and also there's a book coming out I've, I've heard by Madeline Miller, who wrote Circe, and her next book is on Persephone, and I cannot wait to read it. I have to add just one other little personal note yeah. to her answer, and then I'll, we'll, I'll give you the quote that we were talking about earlier. Um, Lily Pickert did this um, beautiful cover art for us, and we hired her to um, generate several options of different um, pomegranates. And while she gave us many good options, Melissa has hanging in her home an, an, a painting very similar to the one that's on this cover that she herself did in graduate school, if I recall, because she got a new set of paints and it only had four colors in it. And she sat down and painted this painting. Lily made it professional. Um, but this, we came back to this, we were sitting in her home and I said, Melissa, why don't we just use your painting? Let's use it because it's beautiful and striking and the black and white and everything. So we then asked Lily to, um, you know, professionalize it for us. But Melissa painted the cover initially. And you wanted to read that quote? Uh, yeah. 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 So this is going back to earlier. Um, the quote is from Sally Latham, who said in 2018, the next time you see a young lady is in her room studying philosophy for hours on end, let her know she can and should. Leave her alone. She's in training and she's spending her time well. Excellent. <laughs> uh, I had some questions which you have sort of touched upon, but I might just bring them up again. Uh, before we go to the other questions, can you tell us, well, you've already mentioned it's not only for girls, it's for everybody, of course, but 
is is it also accessible to undergrad students to high school students can you talk about the intended audience please melissa you want to take that one sure okay so the intended audience it's kind of a broad and we get this question pretty frequently like can i buy this book for my 14 year old niece right um we would say probably a pretty precocious 14 year old niece who would like a reading partner but the book was intended as a book for the general public but also for use in classrooms we imagine that it could be used by book clubs we imagine that someone could find it you know online if they're if they're looking but our our real audience i'd say and kim and i agree on this is really about 16 to 24 years old and so we're trying to get that threshold moment of people and and that could happen younger it could happen older um but really that threshold of people kind of figuring out some basic ideas about their own values their own instincts how they perceive the world and then really wanting to learn more about different areas of not just a philosophy but different ways of thinking about areas that tend to be of concern and question to younger people. You know, Kim and I teach tons of classes in a wide variety of different topics in philosophy. And when we have students who have certain kinds of questions, and Kim has done this a lot more than I have even, you know, we can put this book in their hands and say, here, read this chapter. You're interested in logic, read this chapter. You're interested in a couple different fields of ethics, read these chapters. And so we wanted to have a book that would be available and accessible really to a wide range of people. Um, you know, our friends and colleagues find value in it as well. And we didn't want to create something that we ourselves wouldn't want to read. And I'm 46 years old, you know, and I learned from these contributors as well. But it's really that kind of threshold moment when you're when you're not quite an expert and you don't think you know everything not that experts do but you're also not completely uncritical or completely naive. You're just somewhere in the mix. And for us, those are really precious um, moments. And this is one reason that we love being educators too, because guiding people through those moments and helping them find resources that are suitable to what they're thinking, that is part of our, part of our goal. And again, the emphasis was that we wanted actual philosophy, rigorous philosophy. We did not want philosophy light. Nope. We didn't want it dumbed down. This is rigorous philosophy, but it's so well written by our contributors that a teenager can pick it up. It could be used in undergraduate classes. This could be used in an undergraduate intro to philosophy class, but it still is um, is well researched such that there are philosophers, adult philosophers who can pick it up and read it and learn something new. And so when we were thinking about not just the vision of the book, but okay, now we have to get this done. You know, some of the people we reached out to early on are some of the people we respect and, and admire in philosophy, who we think do rigorous philosophy, but in an accessible way, like Serene Cotter and Maisha Cherry, um like karen store like claudia mills and they all eagerly said yes because they also saw the importance of a project like this and we're grateful for their early staking of the book we didn't do this book entirely by invitation want to make that clear but we did want to make sure that we had some people who we really wanted to be in the book if they could you know that they were invited to do so 
Um, so yeah. And uh, just to go back to what Kim said, I well, well, it was an Oxford book, so I didn't really expect something super, super, let's say, dumbed down version of a philosophy. But I guess it's a it's an art, and you really, really managed to do well to kind of walk that middle path. It's it's really vigorous philosophy. At the same time, it's accessible and it puts a lot of. I mean, it it makes makes uh, makes the readers ask a lot of questions, which is the the intention of philosophy. And I'm really interested in the structure of the book. There are four sections, and you you talk about major uh, philosophical, let's say, the, the, uh, trends, uh, philosophical topics, metaphysics. You have power relations. We have uh, existentialism, political philosophy, ethics. Can you talk about? And you have a beautiful name for each section. You have self, knowing, social structure, and power relations contemplation and action. Can you talk about this structure a little bit? Well, I, I, I can give a first um, go at this and then I will let Melissa follow up. But as we were, we worked on that structure a lot. It, this was an aspect of the book that did not come fully formed to when Melissa had her vision. And we worked for many days uh, together with a large sheets of butcher paper working through different ways to organize the book because we wanted to reflect major traditions and areas in philosophy, but wanted it to be more, again, accessible than simply metaphysics, epistemology. So we were trying to capture, um, you know, the powerful questions that are raised in those different fields and, uh, explain to our readers in the names of these sections why it's important to read this kind of philosophy. Melissa, you want to add to that? Totally. And that was a real, if I can say behind the scenes, kind of coming together of Kim and me, because we had to just frankly hash it out. I mean, we had butcher paper after butcher paper because we we knew we wanted recognizable words and categories to to represent, you know, some standard things in philosophy, especially if these books are going to be used in a classroom, you need that. But given that it's not a standard book and that it's not like, you know, our students come in saying, I have this metaphysical question. We wanted to be able to to um, have there be kind of powerful, very succinct words with subtitles within those sections that would intrigue readers to pick up and read. Um, but yeah, that that was certainly not fully formed. And Kim and I just hashed it out. Um, but it was really fun, if I can just add. Not that that's anyone's business, but if people wonder, like, is this just a slog of a book? No, it was just a really loving, fun. Our our brains are working. We're disagreeing. We're agreeing. We're hashing it out, and so on. And then, of course, you get comments from um, when the book proposal is reviewed, with people having ideas about chapters that they do or don't want to to see in the book. And so we let a couple chapter ideas go and took a few other chapter ideas, but we also held firm to the basic vision and plan at that point because we were convinced and you know how philosophers are when they have 20,000 reasons, which we had, and so we, we stood by them. Um, one final note, the last section called Contemplation in Action, um, that also resonates with uh, the Jesuit tradition, which is not usually prominent in philosophy, and that's totally fine. 
But the idea is that we're not just thinkers or actors, but that really what ethics is, is a way of thinking in the world that's action oriented. And so this idea of contemplation and action, um, that, that phrase is really trying to throw apart and do away with the false dichotomy between thinking and action, which incidentally, of course, is a Greek point as well. Okay. And uh, so the, the book has 20 chapters, 20 female authors. And another interesting thing about the book is that uh, almost the, va the vast majority of even secondary resources or primary resources refer to also from women. That I found okay. really interesting. Um, and I want to play the devil's advocate a little bit. So forgive me for that. Okay. <laughs> so do, what do you see the benefit? Is it, it's not excluding other important philosophical views. So w what do you see in this approach? I could take a first stab at that again, and then Melissa, you would follow up. Um, the, that, the fact that most of the resources within the book are um, women authors is very intentional. We asked our writers, our contributors to um, work in that way. And the idea was, again, I think, can be tied back into a point that you made earlier, Maury, which is there are all of these amazing women philosophers out there in the world, and we simply don't know about them all, right? They're not represented in the canon. They're not represented in the anthologies. We don't have to look to men. It's not as if we can't look to men, right? Or don't want to look to men or male philosophers, um, but there's this wealth of philosophy and intellectual creativity and development and scholarship that is out there, ripe for the picking, to go back to the pomegranate metaphor, um, but that it's there and we wanted to showcase that and um, emphasize that. Yeah, uh, Melissa, would you like to add to this? No, uh, yeah, and, and I do see the value and the benefit because Whenever there's this philosophical issue you want to research or know more about, so you go, you Google it or you go to Encyclopedia of Philosophy, whatever, it's the male authors are there. And like I said, I've been doing a series of podcasts on several history of, history of women's philosophy, and I, and I was just embarrassed. I did not know any of these people. I was just surprised why they have never been included in these books. Um, cool. So let's let's talk about this aspect. Why, why is it that? or historically that prominent female philosophers have not been represented or have been erased from the canon or anthologies of Western philosophy? What are some of the reasons? And do you, do you still think that this is still sort of happening in, in academia or, or if so, how? So I think that the short answer there is patriarchy. Um, you know, it's a bit of, you know, how the winners get to write the history and so the people in power get to do the philosophy and publish the philosophy texts and anthologies. And that has historically been men through patriarchal systems. So we can see how uh, women or um, non-binary philosophers have been excluded for centuries simply because of patriarchal canon, right? Um, and I do think it's still an ongoing issue, especially since many of the kinds of philosophies that some women do are now being excluded as not philosophy, 
So for example, um, very, very traditional, often what we would call analytic philosophers will dismiss things like feminism or social and political philosophy or even certain kinds of ethics as not real philosophy. Instead, that's like cultural studies or communication studies or something else. So it's, you know, women have been excluded, but now kinds of philosophies that some women do are being excluded. So it is, it does still, it's still ongoing. Absolutely. I second everything that Kim said. Um, I'd say that, you know, of the last maybe seven or eight or so articles I've been asked to review for journals, there've been maybe one or two women cited in total. And frankly, I think that's an embarrassment to the profession. Um, there are some movements, of course, kind of a, against these trends. And there are some uh, people through the American Philosophical Association who are really helping to put out some more progressive ways of thinking, um, you know, to, to say, okay, if you're reviewing a journal article, what are some things that you might suggest to the author that they might want to include? And some of those do tend to be, you know, current research and literature, including people um, from, from all parts of the world, including women and so on. And then there are some funny things on social media that maybe people have seen, like, congrats, you have an all-male panel. Right. So this idea that when you're putting a panel together for a conference, maybe it shouldn't be 12 men and no women. Uh, now, one common complaint is, well, there are no women working in this area or uh, we reached out to two or we don't want to tokenize. Right. We don't want to invite women just for the sake of having women. Now, I was in a meeting the other day and our and one person said, and I thought this was just so beautifully put that they've been on a whole bunch of hiring committees and those hiring committees are often called search committees but she said people don't do a very good job of searching so what ends up happening then if, if we're thinking about say who applies to phd programs if we're thinking about who is encouraged to study in philosophy if we're thinking about the kinds of papers that get submitted to journals, if we're thinking about how COVID has had a devastating effect, especially on women and caregivers in terms of their productivity in, in academia, if we're thinking about all those things, we might want to think about how a hiring committee should in fact be a search committee and that part of the job of searching is to go out and look and find people, right? And to do that to the extent possible. This is not to say that there won't be times when, you know, things won't be exactly how you want them to be, but it is possible to do a little bit more of that searching. And so I'd like to think that in this spirit, we can all be a little bit more vigilant and go searching. Now, I will say that one of the challenges right now from my perspective about women in philosophy or academia is that, and we've heard this too, and I totally see it, is that oftentimes women are expected to care about, you know, things that are specifically gender oriented. Right. And in philosophy, we see this a lot. And in fact, I can think about my own work in Greek philosophy in grad school in this way. You know, there was a, a way that I could be perceived as not being, quote, feminist enough um, because I studied Greek philosophy and loved it. And I still do. And I think that that's um, not good as a perspective. I think that what we want to do, especially in philosophy, which is a, a such a small discipline, is encourage everyone to be at the table in a truly pluralist way.
Mm -hmm. And uh, apart from this problem of representation, you you both teach in academia, and do you do you see that there is also a gender gap in undergrad philosophy being, uh, you know, more dominated by males? Yeah, so that was um, part of our original the the research we did to set up proposals for this book was we needed to find more data in addition to our anecdotal evidence. Um, and what we found, we found what we had expected. There is a huge gender gap in philosophy and there are two big drop-off points. Um, it's interesting that uh, if you look at most introductory level of philosophy classes, those are enrolled at roughly 50% men, 50% women, and of course, allowing for non-binary agender peoples in there as well. So I'm just using these terms roughly, um, not trying to exclude any particular group. But men and women tend to enroll in those classes in equal numbers, and they succeed in equal numbers. So if you look at who's getting the high scores, women get high scores in introductory classes as much as or as often as men. There's then a drop off though, between those sorts of students who are in at the introductory level and then students who choose to major in philosophy. And so for in the States, um, philosophy is typically not taught in high schools. So it's not something students come to university wanting to study, they don't know about it yet. And they are introduced to it in their introductory classes. Um, so there's a drop off between introductory students and then philosophy majors and then out of the philosophy majors who graduate there's a second drop off of those who choose to go to graduate school and there are several theories about why this happens and we've touched on several of them already but it is from my um point of view it's basic it's a perfect storm of conditions right it cannot be blamed on one particular condition so there is lack of representation in the texts, as we are trying to correct for. There's lack of representation in professors, right? Um, it's a, it has been a male-dominated field. There is lack of um, female peers, right? Where men or male students tend to have these friendship groups that form, study groups, these sorts of things. If there are fewer women, there are fewer opportunities for those groups to form. And it is not the case that women are incapable of doing philosophy. And this, of course, was a common thought in the previous decade in the same way that women weren't capable of doing math, right? That's completely untrue. Women have shown over and over again, they're completely capable of doing philosophy and doing it as well as men. So it's not that philosophy is too hard. That's not the problem. And several people, a number of people have posited that maybe it's that women don't like the argumentative style, right? That it's too, it's too hard in that way, that they want something that's softer, right? That's something that's easier to communicate in. And we know that that is not true either. Again, because we have evidence of women succeeding in philosophy, but women enter other kinds of fields that are also challenging. Law, engineering, you know, astrophysics. So this idea that women don't just don't like it because it's argumentative, I think is misguided as well. And 
just because something's argumentative doesn't mean it needs to be nasty, right? We could have a thoroughgoing argument, and we mean philosophical argument here, not a fight, but philosophical argument. We can have a thoroughgoing, um, well-supported philosophical argument without it ever becoming um, uh, personal or critical, or sorry, let me take back critical, that has many meanings, but it doesn't have to be personal, it doesn't have to be nasty, it doesn't have to turn into um, something where someone wins and someone loses. In fact, we try to avoid that kind of terminology when talking about philosophical argument because that implies something else, a fight, as opposed to coming together to find the best possible solutions. So that was my long-winded response. Melissa, would you like to add? Mm. Um, yeah, that that that, that, uh, that all kind of sounds familiar and makes sense. Yeah, and you, there, there, there are strategies that people are working on, and uh, you also, I guess, you have some thoughts here as well as to implement some strategies to attract more girls into philosophy. And the same thing is happening in the field of science as well. So I don't know how similar or different those strategies are, but what are your thoughts on strategies to encourage more girls into philosophy? So as I mentioned before, the American Philosophical Association has really been helpful in these ways. I know it's a, a big organization and sometimes there's skepticism of that, but there need not be in this case. Um, there's minorities in philosophy. There are a lot of bridge programs between undergrad and grad school. There are, as you mentioned, Maury, a, a good number of books and, um, and, and different initiatives coming out to help show that philosophy is not the right of a very few people, but actually the right of everyone. And so I think that that's all to the good. I will say that one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately um, has to do with the state of philosophy kind of even more generally. And so even before we're thinking about girls or women or who's excluded there, I think especially post-COVID, there's a, a worry that I have as an educator, just as a person, that there's a numbness that's happening with younger people. And this is something that I've seen in my own classrooms, if I'm being totally honest. Um, whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there seemed to be this real kind of desire and commitment to making a difference and being a difference and so on in the world. Um, I think that some of that has fallen off and I think that there's a little bit of a, a numbness here. So one thing that I think really needs to happen and really, really needs to happen is that there needs to be a recommitment to the joys of thinking and doing that hard work that Kim was talking about. And that we can, in fact, think about a certain kind of intellectual or epistemic joy um, that is possible for everyone. And I see this really affecting our students. I think another challenge is that universities have, by and large, I'd say, kind of resigned a, a real commitment to the liberal arts and to the social sciences and the humanities, and that there's been a huge emphasis placed at many universities, not on kind of that well-rounded or holistic way of, of thinking, but instead on kind of a technical training or a jobs training or vocational training in the vocation sense of jobs, not of 
you know, being called to do something in your life. And so I think that that these are big challenges for young people in philosophy generally. Now, Kim and I, because we both do teach a lot whenever we have students who, you know, show an interest and aptitude in philosophy. Of course, we have a list, you know, 10 feet long of all the ways that philosophy is a great major, right? <laughs> like you do better on the LSAT, you do better on the GRE. Um, a lot of CEOs and business leaders have philosophy in their background and so on. But um, But in reality, I think that a lot of young people feel like there's a lot of pressure not to say yes to the hard intellectual work that allows for adaptability and flexibility in any number of jobs and to get squeezed into kind of narrower, more focused majors. And there's nothing wrong, and I really mean it, there's nothing wrong with those majors. And it's not that philosophy or this way of thinking is going to be right for everyone, but I feel like there's kind of, as Kim was talking about a perfect storm, there's a perfect storm of COVID, apathy, a little bit of numbness, and then huge pressures, right, coming from parents, peers, society, universities, and so on, to, to not say yes to that intellectual life. But the joy that I was talking about is something that Kim and I are really committed to. We all have this capacity in us. You know, Socrates died for the right of all of us to ask questions and to do so authentically. And so I think that part of the movement of supporting girls and women in philosophy actually has to do with bolstering up a bigger movement and really kind of affirming that, yeah, it's all right to want to read philosophy. It's all right to want to think these thoughts. It's all right to hash out with your peers at 3 a.m., you know, when you could otherwise be on your phone. Instead, have that great conversation with your roommate. And it's all right when you're trying to change the world in an activist sense to step back and think about what that really means. Kim, um, uh, you wanted to add something? Yeah, if I could just very yeah, quickly. Sure. Um, I agree with everything Melissa has said, but there's also sort of the, this kind of grassroots kind of um, interaction and communication with students that I think is happening and needs to continue to happen. So at my university, I'm the undergraduate coordinator, which means that students who are interested in majoring or minoring in philosophy are sent to me. So I get to have these one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I often, you know, what do you find interesting? What do you want to do in your life? What, you know, because here is how philosophy could help you achieve that. Here's how you could pair philosophy with something else, but then also reaching out to students. So when you see students who are quiet in the classroom, but you can see the wheels turning, you know, writing notes on their exams, like I can see that you have interesting stuff going on. Why don't you come office and we can talk about it, right? Or writing on exams, hey, you're really good at this. Um, or writing on papers, this is really interesting. Like this is a newer idea. You could publish this even as an undergraduate. So trying to generate that kind of, of interest just through outreach, and that's a slow, slow slog. I don't mean to imply that that's easy or that it's gonna change anything overnight, but um, it is absolutely something that I and my colleagues attempt to do. Million percent, and that kind of active advocacy, just to add a little color to it here um, on the back end, is that that work also needs to be appreciated and acknowledged as work. And so I'd say that one thing that could happen more institutionally is that that kind of work, which often falls to women and specifically women of color usually, 
um, and people of color, that kind of work, that personal touch, that one-to-one -one outreach, that kind of acknowledgement should be recognized as a service to the profession far more than it is. And that service should be, I think, rewarded in any number of ways. Um, Agreed. I wish I had teachers like you in my undergrad years. <laughs> I could have published something <laughs> back then, maybe. <laughs> Uh, there is this section of the book that I am really keen for you to just introduce. It's uh, it's called Thematic Pathways and has three sections, voice, empowerment, and questions. What do you mean by thematic pathways and these three themes you have there? Okay. So, um, you know, I've been teaching for 23 years or so. When I, and I'm thinking of my favorite anthology, it's called Ways of Reading. Uh, and I've used it a ton when I've taught English classes. And it doesn't use the same language at all, but what it does is it lays out different ways that you can read a book to, to focus on different kinds of things. And so, you know, instead of here is your grab bag of chapters that have been loosely organized, if you're a reader, and again, going back to our 18-year-old selves in a bookstore, if you're a reader and you're picking something up, um, the best way through is not always straightforward. And I'm thinking of uh, like Simone de Beauvoir's Ethics of Ambiguity. Um, start with chapter two, don't start with chapter one. I'm thinking of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Again, start with chapter two for the love of everything holy. Do not start with chapter one. You will be like, what the heck is this? And so I was thinking about the, we were thinking about the ways that we come to books as readers and as explorers and that every book is its own kind of exploration and pathway. And so there are, you know, hopefully endless numbers of ways through this book, but we really wanted to focus on some themes that we thought were especially pertinent to, the, pertinent to those threshold moments. So things like voice and empowerment through questions, not just having answers. And so what we wanted to do, and Kim and I had a lot of fun hashing this out, was see which chapters would be of special note and um, special interest to play off each other too. And so when you read those pathways, the idea is that instead of taking head on, you know, metaphysics and, and ontology and kind of reading that first section, which you could do, I mean, we ordered the book in this way. Instead, you could take up those questions and see how those ideas and themes emerge in ethics, in power structures and so on. So the idea here is that we just offered the beginning of a few different pathways through the book with the hope being that readers find their own pathways as well. And I know that for um, those of us who've been in philosophy for a while, sometimes there's no better way to know what you're thinking about a topic than the marginalia you make yourself, kind of like breadcrumbs. And so we wanted to think about what some of those pathways might be for our readers and what would make us excited in terms of reading the book. Agreed. I tend to think of it as like different ways of cross-pollination, right? The way that different strands can come together in different ways. It's one project, but there's a lot going on uh, once you start looking for those kinds of, of connections. Uh Let's talk about the articles, the chapters actually you have written in this book. So, uh, Melissa, your chapter is called Questions, the Heart of Philosophy, and it's in the first section. Uh, and you, you, you bring up a number of uh, interesting concepts there. Can you have some questions, but I'd rather let you talk about that chapter uh, of the book. You talk about the, the, 
do you distinguish between knowledge and thinking? Then you talk about something called ecstatic philosophical questions. So, uh, like I said, I had some questions, but I'd rather just listen to you introduce that chapter to our listeners. Sure. So Kim and I both contributed individual chapters, and we really had to think about how what we might contribute would fit into how the book was shaping up. And so for me, kind of like with Persephone saying, yes, this has to be the thing that starts it. For me, if I had one thing to say to my younger self, it'd be about the nature of questioning. And so that's the chapter I wanted to write. One, one idea that drove that chapter for me was something I find myself talking a lot about with undergraduate students, usually in a philosophy 101 class. And that's about the different kinds of questions we ask. And students tend to be surprised that there are different kinds of questions. And that surprises me, but then it makes me realize that I've been doing this for a long time. And so it doesn't, right. So anyhow, um, I wanted to kind of start by asking the fundamental question, what is a philosophical question and how does it differ from other kinds of questions? Especially I think in our day of search engines, where you have a question, you look it up, you're totally satisfied, that's the end of it. I wanted to show how those questions, they're not unimportant, but and they give us tons of information and they tend to dominate our landscape of our lives. I mean, I myself use them a lot. How philosophical questions are really different than that and interrupt our usual ways of thinking and they should give us great pause. So that chapter is an exploration of how philosophical questions can change us, even if we can't go out and get directions with them or, you know, find out where our chemistry classroom is, but how even asking those questions can resonate with something deep in our human natures and contribute to how we understand ourselves and our world. Now, as a scholar in Greek philosophy, it was initially a bit of a puzzle for me about how I could write this particular chapter without referencing my all-time favorite philosopher, the goat, Socrates, right? Who is the master of questions. Um, one thing I love about Socrates actually is that for him, questions was not just a technique, it was a way of being in the world with others. And, you know, I don't miss him from this chapter Instead, I very much, in terms of the sources that I use, there's Beauvoir, there's Kristeva, and there's a, a healthy dose of Hannah Arendt, who I think has a really good, profound way of understanding what questions do. And I think she's prophetic in the middle of the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, in terms of saying things like what people want to do is not to think, because thinking interrupts our daily lives and our orderly activities. So in terms of how questions change us, I think that when you ask a real question, and as I talk with students sometimes, I think we all kind of have one central question that we come back to in our lives. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a former student of mine right now whose question is always perspective. And he constantly, no matter what he's reading, he's kind of channeling it through that lens of perspective to the point where perspective has become part of who he is you know, and it allows him to keep making progress in terms of how he's asking questions. So I was really thinking about for that chapter and what I was hoping to motivate was how questions fundamentally change us and how they become part of who we are and how if we really take questioning seriously, we can't live our lives without them. 
and how philosophical questions are kind of like poetry in terms of moving us from how we tend to understand the world to sometimes uncomfortable places with complex and new ways of, of seeing the world. And that's what that chapter is about. Thank you very much for beautifully introducing that chapter. Uh, and uh, Kim, you, you, you've written the last article in the book, Courage, Meliorism in Motion. And before you talk about that, I'd just like to kind of acknowledge you. One of the authors uh, that I know in this uh, series is Laurie Gruen. I think she also did her PhD on PhD chapter on a thesis on Frankenstein and eco-feminism. That's how I came mm -hmm. to know her. Mm -hmm. And again, here uh, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised to see her name here, and also the the, the chapter she has that is about the empathy between human and non-human relationship. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so uh, courage, meliorism in motion. What is that chapter about? So that chapter um, comes from my own particular positioning in philosophy i'm a pragmatist and pragmatists like the ancient greek thinkers um deny any sort of absolute division between thought and action pragmatists also deny the fact or the idea that we can become perfect in any way right we are the one of the key aspects of being a human being is that we make mistakes we're fallible we're gonna die we're finite and that we are always already in relations and those relations may be good or bad and they may be ones that we choose or haven't chosen but those are three aspects of what it means to be human we're not going to be able to escape that and in fact if we were to escape that um, we wouldn't be human anymore so given that framework to me ethics the way i define ethics um, and i define it for my students in this way as well i define ethics as the study and pursuit of a good life and we have to study so that we know what it is that we want and then we pursue it it is not the attainment of a good life it's not the achievement of a good life it's not um, achieving perfection in any way it is about an ongoing pursuit right this is how we live our lives this is our comportment in the world so in talking about courage i wanted to try to capture these ideas and say look but thinking about a good life, and in particular, um, say, issues of social justice, right? we don't need to think that we have to change the world to make or to perfect the world to make it better. Often my students, especially in um, classes like feminism or environmental ethics, they often get about halfway through the semester and we have a very we have usually a week or two where the students are just down and depressed and they say to me this is overwhelming i don't think i what i i don't know what i can do to change this like it's so bad how am i going to fix it and i'm like well you do something right you do something or you do nothing and so talking about courage and in particular trying to disconnect courage from this idea of bravery or um you know being a social justice warrior right Courage is just meant to say, look around you, see people who are hurting, who are in need, understand their suffering, ask them about their suffering, don't simply impose yourself, right? And attempt to make it better. You don't have to solve the problem. This does not have to be an all or nothing um, uh, experience. In fact, it can't be, right? We will never achieve perfection. We often tend like use athletics 
as a metaphor for my students again. I'm like, if you think about in the United States, uh, basketball, professional basketball is very good. And LeBron James is known as, you know, one of the greatest of all times. I'm like, think of LeBron James. If he's the greatest of all time and he still practices, what does that say about his relationship to the sport, right? He still sees room for improvement. He's not perfect, right? He still practices. He still has bad games. He can still recount how those games went wrong. So when we have, and like the skilled pianist, right? The concert pianist, they still practice. And to us, it's beautiful. It's an, a, you know, an outstanding athleticism. It's a moving um, concerto or symphony, but they still practice. So why would we think that we would be any different, right? We have to practice living a good life. And um, again, while this book was using primarily um, women resources, and I think we did an excellent job of that, you can trace these same ideas back to the ancient Greeks, right? That, that, that living a good life is about an ongoing pursuit. It is about practicing. It is about attempting to become better in all of these little ways, attempting to relieve suffering in small ways. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to do the big things. Of course, we should try to do the big things and say, I don't want to end up political on here, but there are several issues in the United States right now that we could really work on that are big issues, right? That need to be changed at the issue, at the level of law. So of course we work on those things, but that doesn't mean that what we do in our day-to-day -day lives is not important. And we need to be courageous and able to act when we see suffering in the world to attempt to make it a little bit better without feeling the pressure of having to fix it completely. If I can add something that I really love about Kim's chapter is that it shows how great heart is required for courage. Like the action alone is, is not enough. It's about, as she was saying, listening and being attentive and aware to where a person is and their specific location and what they can do. You know, for some people, a small act, as she was saying, is a great act of courage. And I'm thinking about some other chapters in the book that really make this point. And so, you know, Kim's chapter at the end, I think, um, pulls together many of these themes. But there's the the chapter on credibility by Monica Poole, which I think is a great chapter showing the courage that Cassandra has in speaking out, even though no one believes her, right? It's still courageous to take that action, even though, as Kim was saying, you know, it's not like you're going to simply have the effect that you want. I'm thinking about the the courage actually that Mary Shelley had, even if she didn't even necessarily know it, in writing what she did in the time in which it was not really okay to do that. And it's a good thing she had some support, but obviously she didn't have tons. I'm thinking about the courage and a lot of the anecdotes um, that start some of the chapters. And I'm thinking about the the courage of women artists whose art is still devalued by a ton um, you know, the, the courage of women artists in one of the chapters of the book um, by, Patricia, by Patricia Locke. And I'm thinking about, you know, how even for some of our contributors, contributing to this book is an act of courage. You know, it's not going to count as a peer-reviewed journal article, and it's written with great heart. And, um, you know, so hopefully this book itself in some ways is trying to live out what it is to listen to what people 
want and need, what the discipline could maybe use some of. And while it's not going to change everything and hopefully is part of this kind of bigger grassroots movement, hopefully it too is at least a, a modest act of courage. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I, I really love the the idea that you just talked about, Kim, as well, the idea of listening rather than simply dismissing, because I know a lot of well-meaning people, you know, who when they come across, when they listen to other people, they just come across with some statistics to show, well, what you're going through is not unique. It's it's a natural condition of thing. It's happening everywhere else in the world. Well, how do you expect that person to feel? And like like you said, you don't have to solve the problems, but you can at least listen and try to understand what that person is going through. Um, I, I absolutely love this conversation, Melissa and Kim. I can't thank you enough. It was uh, I honestly say that it was one of the best interviews I've done. I really learned a lot reading the book and I really, really enjoyed this conversation here. in I'm in Melbourne now and it's 12, 15 a.m. Uh, I must admit I was a little bit sleepy because I woke up uh, early this morning, but I'm now fully charged and I don't think I can fall asleep. I'm, I'm just thinking about some of the things <laughs> you talked about in this in this uh, interview. So thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk uh, with us on New Books Network. Well, that is a wonderful compliment. Thank you so much for having us. And this truly has been a fabulous conversation. We love to talk philosophy and we love to talk to philosophy to folks who are interested in philosophy. So thank you for having us. And thank you, as as Kim said, for having us, but also thank you for doing the work and finding this book and wanting to highlight it. Because whether it's this book, whether it's Philosopher Queens, whether it's one of the other books that you have already highlighted on your podcast, this is the work that needs to be done to make philosophy um, belong to more people and more people belong mm -hmm. to it. So mm -hmm. thank you for that active advocacy and yeah. for seeking us out. And uh, we appreciate it. So get some good sleep eventually, even if it's not right now. <laughs> thank you so, so much. Thank you. Truly enjoyable. Yes. Thank you.